The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Interregnum with Richard Seymour. I spoke to Richard about a recent blog post he wrote titled The Unraveling on Britain's declining public infrastructure and the wave of strikes that are taking place, including the first ever nationwide strike by NHS nurses. We chatted about the extent to which the public perceived the UK as being in a state of increasing decline, the state of the trade unions and how current industrial action compares with the so-called winter of discontent of 1978 to 79. And finally, we talked about how the Conservative government and the Labour opposition are responding to a seemingly revivified Labour movement. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles, perfect for PTO listeners. Until January 3rd, Verso have 40% off everything on their site. Highlights this year include a biography of Winston Churchill from Tariq Ali, a call for an internet for the people from Ben Tarnoff, and an analysis of health and illness under capitalism from the hosts of the Death Panel podcast. They also have bundled ebooks with every print purchase, meaning you can gift the print book if you want to and start reading the ebook straight away. Stock your shelves with radical and visionary thinking that reimagines a different kind of world. Verso's big end of year sale finishes on January 3rd. And now to today's interview. If you'd like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's episode, or if you would just like to support the show, please consider becoming a £3 supporter on Patreon. As well as getting access to extended versions of my conversations with Richard, you'll also get extended versions of other PTO episodes. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. In a recent blog post that you wrote on the cost of living crisis in the UK, you wrote that nothing seems to work. Railway lines can't run basic services, especially in northern towns and cities where driver shortages result in regular cancellations. At the same time, traffic congestion is making neighbourhoods miserable, sad places. NHS waiting times for routine surgery are at record levels. Nurses are among those queuing at the food banks and are quitting the NHS in record numbers over low pay and stress. Pharmacists can't get antibiotics for strep A when it is killing children. Even before Royal Mail announced 10,000 new job cuts, staff were quitting over the workloads, exacerbating delivery delays. In universities, most academics are looking at alternative careers after over a decade of worsening pay and conditions. The crumbling school buildings are a threat to life and limb. Britain, a poor country with some very rich people, is becoming a hostile environment, both cruel and dysfunctional, for the majority of people in it. Now, that's a description that, you know, I think that both myself and I think probably a lot of people on the left are maybe predisposed to be sympathetic to. Personally, uh, anyone who knows me knows that I'm in a sort of semi-permanent rage about Britain's transport system and the, the pitiful quality of our housing stock. And like lots of other people, I'm you know, currently paying extortionate London rents to, to live in an icebox and so on. 
And because of that, I'm a bit wary of, of generalising my, my perspective more broadly. But you suggest that, in fact, the sense of public infrastructure dramatically fraying really is now very palpable. And, and, and the majority of people really do feel like their material circumstances are becoming ever more bleak. So how confident are you in that appraisal? And do you think that even some of the previously more comfortable are starting to experience some of the discomfort and misery that is pretty standard for the poorer people in this uh, society? You know, it's a, it's a really good question, and um, uh, it depends on what particular type of problem that we're talking about. So, for example, the managed decline of the railways uh, is, I think, a nationwide scandal and a serious problem, but it accounts for only 7% of total miles travelled nationwide. So, And obviously, you know, the places that are really badly affected, like uh, I mentioned um, the, the struggles that northern cities and towns are having, uh, with regular cancellations, driver shortages and what have you, they're relatively poor. Whereas if you're in London, uh, you know, there are problems in the transport system, but the kind of, uh, uh, London is a place where a lot of middle class people would use public transport and it's better than average for the, for the country. Um, there's, you know, I don't want to downplay any of the problems. But by and large, you can get where you need to get. And that's particularly true if you happen to be in middle-class areas. They generally tend to be more connected to tube lines, etc., etc. Okay, so there's that sort of thing. Um, I do think, though, that, you know, inadequate rail infrastructure and public transport infrastructure does um, have more diffuse economic effects uh, on uh, wide layers of people, whether or not they feel it. But also make the point that, like I say, if it forces people to rely on cars more, and that contributes to congestion, which is becoming a real problem in, in neighborhoods in especially big cities and towns, um, that's something that has quite broad effects. Again, whether people are conscious of that, you know, that's, that's something else. Then there's the, you know, the other things like the crisis of the NHS, record waiting lists, overcrowded GP surgeries, the number of beds in hospitals halving over the last 30 years. Uh, some of the hospitals are crumbling. I think that affects almost everyone. I mean, there's only about 11% of the public has any private health insurance. Millions of people use the NHS. So just to give you some examples um, in terms of, so we can get an idea of the numbers. In the year 2019-20, before the um, pandemic really kicked in, there were 15.8 million attendances at uh, A&E alone. Um, harder to say about uh, GP appointments. We know that in that year there were 300 million appointments available, but how many were used by how many people, I don't know. My guess is just that most people use the NHS at one time or another, and most will have experienced it, those who used it recently, um, will have experienced the ways in which it's being stressed. Other things are a bit more um, differentiated. You know, um, so for example, the 40% cuts to local authority spending and the subsequent constraints. Well, that's a big part of the social wage. I mean, that's huge. Um, use libraries, parks, children's centers, women's refuges, youth clubs, sports and leisure, even your bins collection and your public lighting. All of that sort of stuff, um, is being degraded. And that's more, uh, likely to affect poor boroughs. But, you know, there even, uh, you know, there are those who, for example, can afford to buy alternatives. So you don't go to your local library anymore. You just order something from Amazon. Um, or you buy a private gym membership and you pay a bit more. But, um, if you can afford it, the impact is so softened. I would still say that those people are being squeezed. And I, I would bet they feel it, um, you know, over time, cumulatively and in ways that sometimes, you know, 
you know, you don't necessarily recognize why you're feeling what you're feeling. Um, so there's an element of that. I could go on. You know, we could talk about water and energy, uh, infrastructures that everyone uses, but are really being stretched. You know, water pipelines lose a trillion liters a day because of leaky pipes. That's just because of profiteering. Energy system, so little investment in upgrading and efficiency and renewables. We're susceptible to blackouts this winter. We narrowly avoided them over the summer. There's real problems setting in here. I could go on about universities. And, you, know, you get the general gist of it. One thing that I would mention here um, in terms of the big picture. Quite interesting. We've been told now that living standards are going to fall drastically over the next two years and will still be below pre-pandemic levels by 2028. It's interesting because if you look at pre-pandemic levels, in 2019, the New Economics Foundation found that the average person was still poorer than 2008. That would mean that there had been two decades of declining living standards. Um, uh, you know, despite the fact that there had been, uh, during that period, periods of capital's growth, not a very healthy capital's growth. Um, but I think that this is a situation of fraying um, and unraveling which... Some people are relatively more protected from, particularly if you've got property, particularly if you've got investments. Um, but it can lead to, you know, it doesn't necessarily lead to left-wing consciousness or militancy. You know, it can lead to lower horizons, survivalism, retreat into the shell, negative solidarity in the form of resentment of people who do struggle for better, nationalist resentment. But it's just the point I'm making is that it's part of an, over, uh, an overall crisis of what Gramsci would call direzioni which is usually uh, translated to mean consent, but actually I think means something more like direction as in leadership. There's a sense in which there's no coherent mission, there's no direction for the society, and things seem to be falling apart. And that creates a kind of open-ended situation in which we're, you know, we're vulnerable to vol volatility and shocks. You go on to write about the upsurge in strikes in the UK and, and over December we'll be seeing strike action from the railway workers, postal workers, civil servants, some schools and the uh, National Education Union are currently balancing their members, baggage handlers at the airports, uh, the border force and perhaps most strikingly the nurses with the Royal College of Nurses having called a strike for the first time in their history in an effort to get an, an inflation matching pay rise. Before we go into the details of the strikes, can you tell listeners just how many people are actually in unions in the country and which sectors they are concentrated in? Uh, okay, so 12.9% of the private sector is unionised. You can compare that to 50.1% of the public sector, which makes an average of 23% across the whole economy. So that's the big picture. And just, uh, I mean, it's this is not the lowest in the world. It's low compared to the Nordic countries, and it's below Italy, Belgium, and Luxembourg, but it's actually higher than... Higher than France, right? Yeah, although France, actually, since you mentioned that, it's interesting. It's, uh, you don't have to be a member of a union in a French workplace to vote with it um, and to support its action. And a union doesn't need a lot of members to form part of the governing structure of an industry. So it's, it's a different situation. But, you know, I mean, the, the, we're higher than Australia, France, Greece, Chile, the US. I mean, it's... The problem is not union density per se, although it is, that is a problem. It's rather that um, the, the lack of militancy, um, and that's you know a, a, an accumulated uh, sort of problem of law, culture, um, and you know class confidence and so on. Um, just to get into the specific sectors uh, that you asked about, um, the most unionized sector in this country is education, over fifty percent. 
Part of the reason why the Tory right would love to smash the education unions, consider them part of the leftish blob and what have you. Behind them, you've got civil servants, local government workers, health workers, social workers. Um, you know, it's just worth saying here, um, when they go on strike, it's like the effect is political and only to indirectly does it attack profit in any way. But then you've got these key groups of workers who are unionized and who have actually a lot of leverage in the whole economy. And, you know, this is the effect of uh, the concentration and centralization of capital, where essentially, you know, uh, a lot of work is automated, but the workforce that remain continue to have the ability to shut things down. So energy is about 37% unionized, transport storage 33%, water, sewage and waste management close to the national average of 23%. And some of that is publicly owned and some of it's privately owned. Um, and some of that would hit profits directly. You know, But even where they don't, the, the indirect impact on the economy is quite significant. Then if you go down, you find manufacturing, arts, construction, fire, um, which is you know real estate, um, finance and so on. IT, various professional organizations. So it, it sort of goes down the list like that. Um, again, manufacturing workers, only 15% of them roughly are unionized, but those unionized workers have a lot of leverage. Um, they represent a choke point in the economy because they're a source of a lot of the surplus value that's produced in it. So, I mean, we should try and think about the the sort of disruptive capacities um, that are invested in different parts of the unionized workforce. But um, overall, the situation, it's not catastrophic. It's just not very good. The stock comparison that's made in the media with the the current strikes is, of course, with the winter of discontent of 1978-79, which became the pretext for the Thatcherite assault on the unions. But how does the current level of strike activity compare with the late 70s when around half of all employees were in unions? Oh, God, it's not even close. Look, um, in 2018, uh, days lost to strike action hit a record low, and that was like 276,000. You compare that to 1979, it was 29.4 million uh, days lost to strike action. That was the peak of the winter of discontent. So that was, you know, in 2018, it was less than 1% of the peak during the winter of discontent. Now, um, uh, as a share of total days worked, it, that would even be a fraction of a fraction of a percent. In other words, it would have a negligible effect on uh, the flow of profit, especially since so much of it is concentrated in the public sector. But that said, in October this year alone, there were 417,000 days lost to strike action. That's already uh, almost twice as much as in uh, 2018, the whole year, which suggests that 22 will go down as a year of I don't know, incipient recovery. Um, and then there's another thing to think about. You know, not everything is about the days that are lost to strike action. Because you mentioned the 1980s. You know, the, the minor strikes uh, in 1984 and 85 drove up days lost to strike action um, quite a lot. You know, it hit, hit a, it hit one of the records. The net result was, of course, a catastrophic defeat for the working class and a big step backwards in terms of class cohesion, consciousness, organization, and so on. 2022 is interesting because, you know, the strikes actually started to win, um, thanks in part to this, you know, unique opportunity structure afforded by labor shortages and soaring inflation. 
And it wasn't all public sector workers either. That's also important. You know, we had BT call center workers, postal workers, baggage handlers, um, a lot of public transport workers. So I would say, I would frame it as a start. It's not the winter of discontent or anything close. But um, if what I would look for is enough wins and enough damage done to the government politically that it leaves them weaker, uh, more divided, struggling to force through anti-strike laws, weaker in negotiations where they are the negotiating partner, forced to make concessions here and there that add to the sense of the obvious justice on the part of the strikes. Um, I don't know if you saw the economist James Meadway saying, essentially the smart thing to do here for the government that would be just to... Uh, Salami tactics. Exactly. Give the nurses something, because everybody loves the nurses. You know, everybody's going to support the nurses going on strike. You know, the RMT have always been uh, a much more difficult sell. Um, but they're not doing that. And so I would say there's some possibilities here for um, a sort of incipient recovery. Just that. And why do you think they're not pursuing that strategy? Do they view the unions as, you know, effectively a busted flush because of the, the failure of the movement through the 90s and the 2000s? Or is it more to do with their inexperience? They aren't used to union act- action on this scale and they don't really know how to uh, handle it effectively. It's mm, interesting. I think it might be a lot of things. Um, yes, there's the lack of experience. They haven't had to face a major class confrontation since uh, I think there was a signal worker strike uh, back in 1994. And it lost. And actually, um, since 1992, they, you know, there's been no major successful wave of strike action in the UK. Um, so, um, I think that they're used to winning. And, um, we can come back to examples of where they won. Um, but the point is that, uh, I don't think these are the kinds of people who are minted in, um, the, the, harsh defeats that formed Thatcherism. You know, one of the things that uh, formed Thatcher as a political actor was the um, minor strike of 70, a series of strikes actually in 72, 74. Miners were just at the core of it um, that brought uh, the Ted Heath administration down. And, you know, the Ted Heath administration um, ended up getting the lowest share of the vote that the Tories had got since the Second World War. Actually, um, I think, uh, since the 1930s. Um, so they are not used to um, having to plan ahead, and I don't think they have. Um, I don't think they expected this wave of strikes. I think that there are elements within the government, uh, like Grant Shapps and so on, who thought they could single out um, the rail and transport workers um, and smash them. Like, I think that that was a, a plan but not a plan in the sense of the Ridley plan, if you remember, which, um, you know, they ended up planning ahead for big confrontations, nationwide confrontations, stocking up on coal, um, uh, you know, building up uh, political capital by buying off different groups of workers so they could isolate the miners, um, and also building up big policing apparatuses so they could uh, crush them. Uh, this is not the, the same situation. They're improvising and they have been in denial a little bit. My sense is that they just don't have the uh, political wherewithal or skill to do that salami slicing. And then one final observation I'd make about that is maybe they're not entirely wrong to think that the unions are weak. Um, we don't know. You know, they, this is one of the unknowables of the situation. They might cave. 
Um, a lot depends on the subjectivity of the unions, how willing they are, to how far they'll go. Um, the, the only thing I think that would work, frankly, would be indefinite hard strike actions that, um, you know, essentially force the government to a crisis point where they have to make some concessions. I don't know whether we'll see that. You've made the point that the strikes were made possible by the combination of, of, of inflation, but also the tight labour market. Do you view it as a quite narrow window of opportunity? You know, obviously we're facing a recession. Typically, a recession leads to heightened unemployment, and that that has a, a damaging effect upon the unions. Yeah, um, so they have to hit hard now while they can. Um, but I, you know, it, it's not just that there will be. I mean, you're right to point out to the effect on confidence. Um, there will be more unemployed people around uh, the reserve army of labour, um, but it, that. Uh, and of course, the cost of living crisis is driving some people out of retirement and back into the workforce. That will make it harder. But there's some unevenness there. Again, I think we need to be attentive to the specific uh, sort of orientations and grooves of this, because um, in terms of the level of skill and education involved in any particular job, what the neoliberals would call human capital, there are some types of work that are strategically important, but not... Um, uh, involving a great deal of skill built up over years. So, for example, you could get precarious workers to fill in for some of the work done by posties in the short term. If all you're doing is t- grabbing a bag of mail and taking it out somewhere, that much could be done potentially by relatively untrained workers, although there you would get all sorts of problems. But for the short term, it's doable. You couldn't do the same for signal workers or tube drivers. And certainly if the UCU goes out on indefinite strike action, which has been announced... Um, you can't get the universities up and running again by recruiting the unemployed. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think that there's a window of opportunity here that will close uh, as, you know, the recession starts to bite. Um, but it's also important to bear in mind that the strikes are political. Um, and that's something that, you know, unions are not allowed to declare a political strike, right? But uh, strikes have a politics, and uh, I think that the government strategy has hitherto been to evade the political nature of this by saying, well, this is between the employers and the employees, the government isn't involved. At a push, they'll say it's labor, you know, their coalition of chaos. But the strategy now, you know, the threatening anti-strike laws, demonizing the unions, talking about holiday of chaos, Mick Grinch, all of that sort of stuff, that acknowledges that this is a government's problem, that the strikes go to the heart of how they're running the country, from wages and profits to infrastructure. And so what I would say is a part of the sort of opportunity structure here depends upon, um, for example, campaigns like Enough is Enough. Rallying support for the unions on a political basis is one of their functions. They you know, have these well-turned-out rallies. They encourage people to generalize from each of their particular problems to see how energy bills and late trains and pay cuts and the dysfunctional water system and all the rest of it, they're all connected. And um, sort of secondarily how culture wars and so on are being used to dominate and divide workers. And they say the unions are speaking for all of us. Now that is a basically economistic message. But in one respect, it's a step forward and it can form a kind of class consciousness that goes beyond, you know, just unionized workplaces. It can involve lots of other people and therefore help keep open channels of public sympathy that I think the government would like to shut down. 
Um, ju just, I mean, to qualify all this, there are ways in which this can go horribly awry. Um, you remember when the unions called big strikes over austerity in 2011, and there were these huge public demonstrations. Unions were at the core of a what you would call a transversal alliance, including the students, the Occupy movement, a Renaissance uh, Labour left uh, who had joined the party under Ed Miliband. All of these were sort of uh, smaller forces, much smaller. But the coalition fell apart because the unions called off the strikes, took a bad deal, left the others isolated. There was a big police crackdown coming, especially since the England riots. So this could go awry, but the thing is, you know, the whole history of socialist struggle frequently is a dialectic of defeat. You know, we sometimes lose the immediate battle while changing the terrain and shifting the bounds of what's possible. I mean, that to me is the experience of Stop the War, for example. So uh, mm. the, the experience yeah. of Corbynism as well, arguably. Yeah, I think that's right, you know. I think that's right. And I think that um, there's been an insufficient recognition of that. The government is obviously banking on public support or, or, or tolerance, at least, of the strikes to be eroded by annoyance at, at the disruption that the strikes will cause, uh, particularly on the on the transport network. Uh, and this morning, the sun is gunning for the RMT's McLynch, who they have on their on their front page. Do you think the government and their media outriders will succeed in turning the public mood decisively against the strikes? They could do. It might work. Um, and uh, these sorts of strategies have worked before. The laws that they're planning certainly won't make a difference to these strikes. They won't come in online in time. Uh, but one thing I've noticed about public opinion is that it's actually somewhat polarized on the strikes. It's not the case that in any of the polls I've seen, you know, a, a big majority supports the strikes. But that sometimes you get a majority, um, but in, in a lot of cases you get large majority, sorry, large minorities, surprisingly large minorities. Um, so, for example, at the end of November, YouGov put, put out a poll about the RMT strikes, and they basically found it was 41% for and 47% against. Um, there was a huge generational effect here, by the way. 51% of 18 to 24-year-olds supported the strikes. 65% of over 65s opposed them. And, you know, you can see that there's a climb going from the youngest to the oldest. This is quite interesting, I would say. My assumption would have been that public support for the strikes was, yeah, maybe uncharacteristically high. I would not expect a lot of support for the RMT, for example. They always get a uh, stick from the media. Um, but probably quite thin and likely to erode quickly in the face of any real problems. But the age demographics um, that are least likely to use the rail on a daily basis and who don't currently work for a living, they appear to be the ones who are most opposed Whereas those who actually uh, experience the rail and experience what it's like to work um, are the ones supporting it. Also telling to me, um, and we may, I, I don't know, uh, you know, we may disagree in our reading of the polls here, but my understanding is that this isn't registering as a polling boost for Sunak. I think the polls have settled down a little under Sunak, but it looks to me like he's still facing a choice uh, in the polls between a 1997-style drubbing or, in actual fact, a near wipeout. Now, I'm not confident about what's going to happen in 2024. I'm just saying that at the moment, Sunak is not uh, making a lot of political capital out of this. I would say it makes him look a lot weaker. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit surprising. I mean, I, I assumed that there would be more of a bounce for Sunak, given that he was the the opposing candidate to trust in the in the in the election, and, and obviously uh, was very critical of her. Uh, you know, re- regardless of what we think of his politics, he was very critical of of what she was proposing uh, to do. Going back to your your initial description in in your blog post of Britain as a poor country with some very rich people, and there you're referring to I think an article in the Financial Times which was comparing the experience of the poorest in um, in, in various countries. But Britain is still the sixth largest economy in the world. So why do you think it makes sense to describe Britain as, as a poor yeah, country? Yeah, as you point out, I took that from the FT's statistician John Burns Murdoch, who who does great work. Um, and uh, there he's just making a point about how capital's growth is distributed, how average income data is skewed by the extremely high amount of wealth accumulated at the top in countries like the UK and the USA. So he talks about, first of all, how the poorest Britons have, uh, to quote him, a standard of living that is 20% weaker than their counterparts in Slovenia. Okay, so you might think, well, that's just the extremes. But he goes on. He says the average Slovenian household will be better off than its British counterpart by 2024. And the average Polish family will move ahead before the end of the decade. By the average, he just means the median. That's the 50th percentile. So we're not talking about the poor. We're talking about middle-income households. That would include the upper end of the working class, I guess, quite a lot of middle-class households. Now, there is a contrarian take available here, which has some purchase, and that is that the comparison with Poland and Slovenia is tacitly racist that it assumes that these countries are backward shitholes and, you know, that they shouldn't experience relative success. And there is a point to that because, you know, I I mean, first of all, I've been to Slovenia. It doesn't feel like a poor society. Um, Both Slovenia and Poland have very high rates of growth. You would expect some catch-up. You know, that's not surprising. But even taking that into account, both of these countries remain far behind the UK, not just in terms of crude GDP, you know, sixth biggest economy in the world. But in terms of GDP per capita, even when you take into account purchasing power parity, they're pretty far behind. So by any measure, if the UK were the rich society that it seems to be on headline GDP figures, then UK households would not be falling behind their equivalents in Poland and Slovenia. So the question is, what's going on? And I would say the declining living standards of the wage-earning majority, those who don't get their income from either property or investments, is disguised in official growth figures by the gains made by the property-owning middle class in terms of their house prices and the rest of it, and the investment-holding upper class, and particularly the city, which attracts, you know, enormous amounts of investments income, drawing in surplus value that's produced all over the world. And most of the country just doesn't see any of that. So that's the sense in which um, I would say the majority of the country that is not uh, based in the rich parts of the southeast, uh, is becoming poor. I mean, and the, these terms are relative because let's be clear: poor by historic standards for the UK, poor by perhaps European standards, not poor by comparison with Brazil, you know. Um, but still, uh, it's it, this is not the country um, that you would think it is based upon the very high concentration of billionaires and people with extravagant amounts of money pushing up uh, overall uh, growth figures and income figures. 
do you think people tend to make these comparisons between different countries? Because, I mean, you know, certainly one thing I, I felt through the pandemic was the purchase which which the government seemed to be able to, to have with claiming that it had handled the pandemic well. And obviously, you know, the, the vaccine rollout was a big part of that. But nonetheless, it, it, it did seem that although, you know, lots of people on Twitter and, you know, me amongst them, you know, we're sort of just pointing to how badly we were faring through the pandemic in terms of the comparative death rate. Um, it, it didn't really feel like that was cutting through to the public in general. And doubtless that was due to the media in, in large part. But do you think it's kind of normal to, to make those kind of comparisons? Or is that really um, an activity that is a bit of a minority pursuit? Yeah, it's certainly a minority pursuit. Um, and the, the point is not that this will be felt in that precise way by, uh, you know, millions of people. Uh, I think people respond more to declines or increases in their personal situation, you know, their class trajectory over time. Um, and so therefore, for me, I think politically more important um, in terms of mobilizing people is the experience of decline and its obvious roots in uh, the ways in which the conservatives have run the country. But also, it's roots in the economic model that both Labour and Conservatives have accepted and that needs to be broken with. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't think that because we say this, that this necessarily results in uh, a kind of uh, outrage or indignation that you would perhaps expect to have. Or sometimes it might result in the wrong kind of outrage, like uh, bloody polls getting more money than us, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but still, the empirical fact of the matter is that Britain is a lot poorer for the majority of its people than you would think. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that is a, a, a fact that's, I would say, relatively recent uh, in historical terms. It's been building up for a few decades. Um, and it's a fact that uh, is going to register an impact on people in very different ways and in ways that, as I say, will result in a kind of indeterminate, volatile political situation. One thing we can expect, I think, is surprises. Where do you think the question of Brexit fits into all of this? Because obviously Brexit was sold partly as, as the solution to a sense both of relative powerlessness, this idea that we were sort of being dictated to by Brussels and so on, but that also that, that it would reverse what was perceived by people also on the right as, as a sense of sense of decline and their you know fantasies of, of Singapore on Thames was partly motivated by that. And obviously that, you know, there's no concern on the right about distributional questions, but the lack of growth in the economy is something that they're concerned about. Yeah, it's interesting because for the first time, uh, I have noticed a polling recently showing that people overwhelmingly, I mean, uh, not overwhelmingly, but pretty strongly by about 60, 66% margins, basically think that Brexit was a bad idea. That doesn't necessarily mean to say there's a consensus to reverse it. Uh, that's a different question. And a lot of people would back off from that kind of fight, understandably. So I think that there is a sense in which, for the right, Brexit is a thwarted revolution. You know, um, we had uh, the uh, sort of formal de jure Brexit, you know, withdrawal from Europe, but we haven't had the de facto transformation of economy and society along the lines that they were expecting. 
Um, and in fact, obviously, and I suppose arguably the the, the trust and Kwarteng uh, government was an attempt to do that, right? It was, you know, they viewed Johnson as being too given to moving with the winds of public opinion and being too statist in his politics. Yeah, although I would say that your your point there just actually underlines how little consensus there was over what Brexit should actually mean, even on the right, because what Johnson. Uh, represented was certainly one strand within Brexit opinion. You know, the idea of an industrial policy had been floated by uh, elements within the Brexit party, by the British Chambers of Commerce and so on. And I suppose that, that that's an agenda closer to the, the red Toryism that had more support amongst the electorate as opposed to you know, the advocates of the so-called Singapore model, which the Britannia Unchained crowd were so excited about. That was a more marginal position, right? Absolutely. But I mean, I think it's just worth saying um, the main thing about Brexit is that it's just lost its ability to provide that direzione. It's lost the ability to cohere uh, an overall conservative program. And I think it lost that partly because of the pandemic and its uh, disorienting effects on uh, national states, um, and partly because of the way the conservatives processed all that as a crisis of Boris Johnson's leadership, as though the things that he was doing uh, which were genuinely bad, um, uh, to put it in that language, were news to them, as though they had just discovered that he was d- a bit disingenuous and was, uh, you know, prone to a bit of corruption. Uh, crazy. Um, I think they did themselves massive amount of damage with that. Going back to the blog post, so you describe how the Tories are, as you you put it, ideologically exhausted. You know, as we've talked about, the notion that Brexit would have some magical reviving effect upon the economy seems to have been a mirage. The horizon of possibility for Sunak appears to be avoiding a catastrophic wipeout at the next election. Do you see any evidence of a plausible growth strategy emanating from Sunak's government? And do you see, for instance, the the government's programme to free the city from the regulations that were imposed after the financial crisis as the start of some halfway plausible approach? Not at all. I think that it's... Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that um, Sunak is you know, a pretty smart pragmatist um, in in those terms, in conservative terms. Um, he's demonstrated that he can keep, you know, placate the headbangers, bend to the, what I would call the national conservatives, the Johnsonites. He's instinctively Osborneite, and he can sort of uh, move with the um, overall direction of opinion, let's put it like that. But he doesn't have a distinctive vision. I don't think he's equal to the situation that he finds himself in. He's not the kind of modern prince that uh, arguably Thatcher was, who, you know, could translate doctrine into a kind of common sense and build alliances with these new conservative ideological thematics that would actually cut across traditional left-right divides. He's the guy you put in charge to hold things as steady as possible. And I think that's what he'll do. Um, If he does well, he'll avoid outright destruction. That's basically it. If he'd taken the leadership, by the way, you know, rather than Liz Truss, he might be fractionally ahead in the polls now, um, because I think he would have, you know, given us um, a more austere iteration of Johnsonism, but not sufficiently austere to get people's backs really up, because he would have deferred most of the cuts as he's done until um, the next parliament. But he's just not equal to uh, the situation. And as I say, um, in terms of growth projects, there isn't one. I think what there is emerging, interestingly, is a kind of uh, redefinition of the right. Because, you know, uh, if you look at the Tory think tank onward, 
Uh, it's been uh, present in a lot of the right-wing press. It's been pitching for what it calls uh, a national conservative strategy along the lines of uh, what they say won in 2019. They call for a ditching of Thatcherite mythology, for a combination of sort of moderately leveling up economic policies with hard borders, tough on crime policies. They show in their polling that voters actually prefer an orientation towards reducing inequality over growth. And they are defining this as a center-right position, as the mainstream conservative position for centuries and so on and so on. What they're really doing here, you mentioned Philip Blonde earlier, they're really building on the ideas of red Toryism um, that find some expression in Nick Timothy's strategy for Theresa May's government, never really actualized, and that Boris Johnson did attempt to implement to some degree. And I think that um, we might not see uh, a coherent growth strategy but I think that the, the next Tory leader will be much more in that mould, not a Sunak. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash to sign up. Thanks for listening.